Welcome to Rights Up Right Now, a podcast from the Oxford Human Rights Hub. I'm Kira Allman, and today I'm talking to Bonnie Myersfeld, Director of the Center for Applied Legal Studies and an Associate Professor of Law at the School of Law, University of Witzwatersrand, Johannesburg. In the wake of the global financial crisis, and more recently the UK's EU referendum and the 2016 US presidential election, there seems to be a growing awareness and concern for the influence of corporations on our economic, political, and social lives. In the digital age, Facebook has been at the center of debates around fake news, and Google is at the heart of issues surrounding the right to be forgotten. But corporations have always wielded tremendous influence in society. The question in these recent cases, and throughout history, has been whether the law is equipped to handle that influence. There are many ways in which private businesses hold financial and political power akin to states. They also commit violations and abuses of power akin to states. But are they held accountable in the same way that states are? This episode is all about whether corporations should have human rights obligations. Should they be responsible for upholding and defending human rights the way that we expect governments to? Like all abuses of power, corporate abuses have disproportionate impacts on the poor, the marginalized, the disadvantaged. Poorer countries bear the burden of weak corporate regulation, for instance. In addition, there are gendered impacts. Though it may not be immediately apparent, gender inequalities are created and exacerbated by corporate policies and violations. Human rights law specifically identifies and addresses discrimination against women and enshrines certain protections for workers, but should those protections apply to corporations directly? I'm here with Bonnie Myersfeld, who is going to help us answer some of these questions. I'll just add that Bonnie is joining us on the phone today, so if it sounds like she's a bit far off, that's because she is, but I think you'll be able to hear her just fine. So thank you so much for joining me for this podcast episode, Bonnie. Absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. Okay, so Bonnie, could you give us a bit of an introduction to how you became interested in the relationship between business and human rights? Sure. So I wrote a book a few years ago on domestic violence as a violation of international law. And the thesis of the book, which was quite contentious to suggest that something as global and overarching as international law could apply, apply to something as intimate as violence committed in the home or between intimate people. But the thesis was that the state has an obligation to protect people from harm, mm. irrespective of whether the harm is committed by the state, such as police, or whether it's committed by non-state actors or private entities, such as abusive partners, but also such as companies. And that work segued quite organically into consideration of all agents, not only state agents who commit human rights violations. I was working in the House of Lords uh, on human rights and, and state obligations, and I remember the moment exactly when I had a bit of an epiphany and realized that we had actually not been considering 50% of the agents responsible for human rights violations. In our focus wow. traditionally on states, we have or had become blind to that which was so obvious to see, and that was the role of corporate power. 
So that's how I came to the subject. When you say that corporations commit human rights violations, what do you mean by that? Yeah, it's actually a great question because what a lot of people argue is that it's not corporations who commit human rights violations; it's individuals in corporations. So let's hold those individuals liable.、Yeah. And I'll come to answering your question in a second, but it's useful first to to stipulate that it is, of course, individuals. When I explain some of the harm that may occur on the part of a company. It's their individuals who actually do the harm, and individual employees or board members. But remember that individual employees are the agents of all corporate activity. And in respect of all corporate activity, we all believe the fiction, the legal fiction, that there is a juristic entity that is responsible for mergers and acquisitions, tax avoidance. Any other kind of developmental project.、Mm-hmm. When we talk about those things, we don't talk about individuals. We talk about a company. So, what is it that a company may do? Well, the most obvious to most people is around the following areas: in the extractive industry, around environmental violations and violations against affected communities. We hear a lot about relocation, forced relocation of communities, often very poor communities. From the land in which they're residing, because there is a mineral wealth in that land, we hear about the contamination by mining companies of water sources. We hear about the exploitation of people living in poverty by paying very low wages for extraordinarily difficult work. We hear about the repression of trade unions. The other typical industry in which you hear about this type of harm is in the. Garment industry about our clothes and how they're made.、Mm-hmm. A lot of us know about the Nike or Reebok phenomenon, where it was discovered that sweatshops in countries like Vietnam, Bangladesh,、uh, other、uh, certain parts of India, where there were these sweatshops of people working in conditions where there were no windows or ventilation for twenty to twenty-three hours a day until they had completed their output, and that the the Final product was then sold for astronomical prices without any of that money going back to the workers who had produced it in these factories. So those are some of the ways in which businesses cause human rights violations. But there's another area in which we see violations continuing, and where I think people all over the world are starting to understand this, and that's the role of banks. We saw with the 2008 crisis around the lending and uh, uh, systems that were so unstable and problematic. We saw that crash, and we saw the banks being directly responsible for that and escaping all accountability. Is there a reason why we're having this conversation about the responsibilities of corporations now? Why is there a growing awareness of the role of corporations in human rights issues? I think that. There are probably three broad reasons why we are becoming more aware of this. The first is undoubtedly globalization. So you have a situation where corporations that are based in one state, we call that their home state, are starting to operate beyond the borders of that state. In other states, usually referred to as host states, and they will start setting up their operations in the host states, usually because those states have weaker regulation. Have higher levels of poverty, and therefore you can pay lower wages. And where the state is incentivized to keep its、uh, labor costs and regulation 
weak and low. And often in those jurisdictions, there isn't an effective court system, or if there is an effective court system, uh, the people who may or may not be involved in that or in that company aren't able to access those courts for various reasons. A lot of it is linked to poverty. So the result is that the host state where a particular violation may occur is not able to grant access to victims if, if their rights are violated. On the other hand, if you um, want to go to the, the, the home state, so let's say you have a factory collapse in Bangladesh and the factory workers want to sue the, the clothing company in question in the United Kingdom, the United Kingdom courts will say, well, it's the, it's the parent company that we have jurisdiction over. We don't have jurisdiction over the company based in Bangladesh. Mm. And therefore, you can't bring the claim in our courts. And so you have what we call governance gaps, where there are these huge voids of empty spaces where people find themselves in a no man's land of justice, where they cannot access justice. And it's because of that gap caused by cross-border trading and globalization that we are starting to emphatically demand some kind of international law response. I think the second reason why we also are becoming aware of this is because of the amazing role of technology. Hmm. It's, it's quite remarkable, and the capacity that we have from a technological point of view to transfer information and images in a matter of seconds worldwide. And that, that's really quite a unique situation. So we're learning through documentaries, through on-the-ground activists, through cell phone images about what might be happening in a particular area or part of the world that is completely shut off from, from the rest of the world who might be consuming products made by them, for example. And the third thing, I think, is because of the collapse, increasing collapse between states and companies. It's hardly a major country in the world where a government has not been implicated in some form or another with corporations that have committed human rights violations. So if you think about the United States, its invasion into um, Iraq and Afghanistan, was linked very closely to Dick Cheney's company, Halliburton, and its operations, and it made a huge profit out of that war. If you think about Tony Blair and the profits that came out of a particular contract that was concluded under Margaret Thatcher's time uh, between the British BAE, which is the British uh, munitions company, with the Saudi Arabian princes, and, and, and there's been no remedy of what is clearly a very problematic transaction. Mm. Same if you look at South Africa at the moment, the same if you look at uh, Greece during its collapse, its economic collapse. In, in Africa, you need only look at Nigeria. Brazil has been accused of this. China has been accused of this. So I think that these three things, globalization, technology and the communication capability, and thirdly, the collapse between governments and corporations has really been the accelerator that has driven a very powerful force in favor of global regulation of corporations. Are there international mechanisms in place for dealing with corporate responsibility in the realm of human rights? The United Nations has been dealing with this matter for a very long time. It set up a working group, a type of working group, 
in the 70s to address or to come up with some ideas about how to address this type of harm. That working group developed the, a, a set of transnational norms on business and human rights. And those norms were wholly rejected by the relevant UN bodies for very many reasons, but they were completely rejected. Kofi Annan was the UN Secretary General at the time, and he was very committed to the idea of corporate social responsibility and corporate accountability for human rights violations. And he appointed a special representative of the Secretary General, which is a very important mechanism in the UN. And he appointed the special representative to further investigate ways and develop ways in which businesses could be held accountable worldwide for human rights violations. Mm. And he appointed John Ruggie, Professor John Ruggie of Harvard University. And he, with a brilliant team, worked on developing what are now called the guiding principles in business and human rights, often referred to as the Ruggie principles. And there are a set of principles that rest on three sort of pillars. And these pillars must be seen as interlinking pillars. They, they all speak to one another. The first pillar is the confirmation that the state has a duty to uh, protect human rights. Now, this is uncontentious, but it's terribly important that it's stated as explicitly. So he uses the words carefully. He doesn't say that the, the states have or may have some kind of obligation. He says they have a duty. The second pillar is what he calls, again, very carefully, the, the corporate responsibility to respect human rights. So you've gone from language of duty to protect to language by corporations of responsibility to respect. And what he explains under this pillar is that corporations must do no harm. They mustn't go into a situation, a country or an industry in which they are going to cause harm or exacerbate harm. The third pillar is that if either the state does not comply with its duty to protect and or the corporation does not comply with its responsibility to respect, then there must be access to remedies. And the third pillar gives a number of ways in which those remedies could occur. Obviously, there's the general principle of access to justice, to courts. But there's also room in that pillar for a very exciting development of alternative remedies, including mediation processes, international, uh, uh, sorry, independent grievance mechanisms, uh, and, and so on. So there's really a collective of these three pillars, which if all of them hold, you would have effective accountability. Since then, there's been a lot of work on how to strengthen the principles. Uh, and this has been discussed in two ways. The first is in states developing national action plans to actually implement the, the guiding principles. And the second is around the development of a binding treaty that would apply to companies. So, so these are very exciting developments in taking forward uh, the guiding principles. Okay, so what are the arguments in favor of binding human rights obligations for corporations? Like the, the first, it relates to the reasons for this discussion that we, we mentioned earlier, and that is the governance gaps, right? So if you have a situation in which victims of human rights for violations are falling between the gaps of various jurisdictions, then you need another type of regulatory mechanism. And that regulatory mechanism has to be able to transfer 
between different states and jurisdictions. And the only regulatory mechanism that we have at the moment is that of international law. So it's not that corporations have no binding obligations. It's that they have obligations that apply depending on the law of the state in which they operate. So you'll find that there may be much tighter regulations in, say, for example, the United States around one type of practice, business practice, and looser regulations in another state, say, for example, Vietnam. So you might ask, well, why, why is there a difference in that kind of regulation? Why is there much more rigorous regulation in one country and not in another? And there are a couple of reasons for that. The first is because the, the countries with weaker regulation are often extraordinarily poor. They are desperate for foreign investment. And th there really is a continuation, in a way, of a colonialist approach to cross-border activity where very rich companies from very rich countries are taking their operations offshore, their factories, their production centers, their mining, and so on, and operating in a um, in an environment of extreme poverty, where because people are living in such desperation, they are at the point of, or, or, or they will work for what we call uh, an enslaved salary which will only allow them to, to feed possibly one member of a family, if at all. doesn't allow them to save and doesn't allow them to, to escape poverty. Mm. But the second reason is because a lot of the countries in which multinational corporations operate with, low, with weak regulatory systems is because they've come out of severe economic or political instability as a result of war, and while everybody raises their eyebrows and, uh, uh, when we talk about continued colonization, I'm afraid it's very real. You know, decolonization only happened 40 years ago um, and in, in many respects, um, in some countries even more recently. And those structures demanded an extraction of wealth from those countries. And the only thing that changed was not the structure, economic structures. What changed was the political governance. So you had white governments, European and American governments, pulling out of colonies. Uh, but you have or had corporations remaining. And so there's a, the legacy of colonization in terms of creating unstable societies with their high levels of conflict and economic instability means that the exploitation can continue structurally. And it is this that really also needs to stop. I think this points to something important in this debate. Corporations have always played a role in forwarding and impeding human rights because they are so closely tied historically to state formation and colonization. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. If, if you look back at companies historically, They've been corporations of the state. So, for example, the Dutch East India Company, which was responsible sure. for the colonization by the Netherlands of South Africa. So we've just seen them delinked from the state in a way. 
You work a lot on gender inequality and the role of corporations in exacerbating women's marginalization and, and certain violations committed against women. Can you talk a bit about what role corporations play in gender inequality writ large? It's one of those things that isn't perhaps immediately obvious. I think it's in answering that, it's important first to understand what the problem is with gender inequality. Yeah. For many people, gender inequality is something that is a fiction. They don't believe it exists. Mm. So why do we continue to say that there is a problem around gender inequality? Well, gender inequality manifests in the following ways. Over 70% of people who are homeless, refugees, migrants, are women. The majority of people living in poverty by far, over 70%, some would say 80% are women. women to, to, for women to live in a domestic partnership of any sort to get married is one of the highest risks of disability and death that they will face, more so than cancer, HIV, TB, or other illnesses that typically are seen as the main causes of death and disability and ill health. Simply living with a man or having a baby can be life-threatening. There is globally an 18% pay differential between women and men uh, who, who are doing the same job with the same qualifications. It is staggering. And so it is this harm that we have to understand that actually factually exists. Mm. So what is the role of a corporation in either exacerbating this or taking steps to ameliorate it? So there are two ways that I understand a corporation's role. The first is what I call internal considerations and the factor. The second are external factors or considerations. Mm. Internal considerations is what most people will understand when you talk about gender equality, and that's gender equity. It's are you, are you employing uh, the same number of women and men? Are you breaking down barriers of entry? based on gender and race and sex and other differentiating characteristics. Are you paying women the same amount of money as men? These are your classic company considerations when it comes to gender equality. But there are also ways in which a company can cause uh, gendered harm through its operations that are not specific to the people it employs. A classic example of this is the mining industry. A mining industry will rely on five indispensable players. There are five players in any mining industry with, with possibly two exceptions in the world. Hmm. But those five players are the mining companies themselves because they have the expertise to do large-scale mining. It's the financiers, the banks who will fund large-scale mining. It's the governments who are often the custodians or gatekeepers of the mineral wealth. The mine workers themselves, and no matter what level of machination actually happens in mining, mine workers will always be needed in certain forms of uh, deep level mining. Mm. And, and finally, it's affected communities because in almost every mining area, communities spring up. And these communities may be members of the families of the mine workers. They are part of the mining fabric. And, and so we have to understand that all three exist. Companies can have a devastating impact on 
the experience of women in affected communities. And that impact relates to health. It, it, it impacts the employability of women and it impacts their chances of escaping poverty after the mining project is complete. Mm. So, for example, we've had several cases of women in affected communities where they are having severe reproductive ill health or, or reproductive concerns. And a lot of this occurs in respect of women who, before they came to the mine, were living in areas that were far flung from the mine, and in those areas they never had any problems with their reproductive capability. So there's obviously a link between what the mining company is doing, obviously I'm referring to water contamination or air pollution, and the experiences that they're having. Mm. But there are also other ways in which a mining company may impact negatively on affected communities. The mining company will utilize a huge amount of water that water will be diverted away from an affected community. And because women are the key people responsible for water in most impoverished communities, water collection rests, rightly or wrongly, on the shoulders of women, it impacts them if they have to walk two or three hours to a water source in order to bring water back right. to, to their homes. So is there a value in drawing attention specifically to women then in this conversation about corporate responsibility? Now, let me be clear here. One of the, the key things that kept on coming up during the development of the guiding principles was, well, if we talk about the impact on women, shouldn't we also talk about the impact on children, indigenous persons, and other characteristics? And then don't we land up with too fractured a set of principles um, and we move away from this important approach of having a standard set of principles? And my argument is that it's not the same. Having a gendered analysis is not the same as focusing on women. Having a gendered analysis means that you don't assume that there is one type of victim. If you talk about human rights violations committed against community, my sense is that anyone reading that or listening, immediately what will be evoked in their minds are, are male members of the community. And that's not what a victim looks like. Yes, men and women both experience human rights violations, but women will experience them in a different and similar way. And if you start to analyze human rights violations and corporate accountability by understanding that there is no one-size-fits-all victim, that there is no homogenous victim, then you understand what the appropriate response should be to human rights violations. And once you start peeling away those layers of assumptions about what a victim looks like, you're not going to stop only at a woman. You're going to stop. You're going to look at, well, how are children affected? How are people with disabilities affected? So the gendered analysis should feed into every single step a state or a corporation takes in order to address corporate linked human rights violations. Is there anything states can do better? We've been talking a lot about businesses, corporations, but what can states do? There's clearly a responsibility on all players in different ways. But I think, in my view, the most effective resolution of this inequality lies in the unification of impoverished states around ensuring that their laws can be strong, that they don't compete with one another to attract investment by lowering their standards of uh, 
of labor laws and regulations and wages. So what we see at the moment is that you can have uh, country A, B, and C in the same region all competing for the business of X company. And X company in negotiating with each country will say, well, who's going to offer me the best deal? Mm. And so each country will say, we'll make it cheaper for you to be here. We'll give you tax exemption. Uh, you don't have to pay the wages as high. We, we're not going to hold you accountable for A, B, and C. And you'll end up with a situation in which there is a pre-existing structure where there's no way victims would be able to gain access to justice because you set it up. But if those three countries were to unite and collectively say, look, we can compete for foreign investment from company X, but what we're going to do is all say, no, we have, for example, a minimum wage and you can't pay below that, mm. or you won't be tax exempt, or you will leave X percentage of the money that you, that you make and the profits that you make within our country so that you're not played off against each other. Does litigation play a role here at all? Are corporations being taken to court on human rights grounds? Definitely litigation is extensive, important. There are various types of litigation. There's most famously is probably the alien tort statute in the United States, which allows uh, foreign nationals, so people who don't live in the United States, to bring claims against uh, to bring claims in the U.S. courts for violations of international law effectively. Uh, this has actually been used to allow people in host states to bring claims against corporations for human rights violations where those corporations are based in the United States. They haven't ever been successful other than through settlement, but they brought a huge amount of attention to the to the need for a, a legal structure where there can be litigation to protect the rights and to afford remedies of people who are affected by, by corporate activity. We also see a lot of litigation happening in home states where lawyers will try and bring a case on behalf of victims of human rights in a host state. Uh, in, for example, if they're victims of human rights, for example, in Ghana, by a a British company, then British lawyers will try and hold that company liable in, in England. The difficulty is, as I've said before, uh, the issue of a, a veil or, or separate legal personality between a parent company and a subsidiary in a different country. Uh, but, but that's often a, a way of, of litigating, and they're, of course, litigating in the home state. There are also some voluntary, very interesting voluntary mechanisms. So there's something called the OECD Guidelines on Multinational Corporations and Human Rights, and they have a mechanism referred to as the national contact points, which are in the states of most of the signatories to these guidelines. And in these national contact points, you can bring a complaint against any corporation. Uh, and, and that national contact point has the jurisdiction to hear the matter and essentially write up a report. So it's not legally binding in any way if the company doesn't want to do what the NCP the national contact point recommends, there's nothing you can do. But it's been very useful for naming and shaming and developing principles of international law applicable to, to corporates. So how do we make this happen? How do we hold corporations responsible? One thing I would say in conclusion is that if we want to get this right, if we want to ensure that there is global justice for people in the face of corporate abuse, 
then the mechanisms we develop must be informed by those people. And those people are not just men, they're women, they're elderly, they're the affected people, they're not trade unions only, they're not government officials only, they're the people who are hurt. And irrespective of the mechanism we pursue, be it a treaty, be it guiding principles, if we really want to get it right, those are the people to whom we have to be speaking and not dignitaries in a beautiful room in Geneva or New York. Well, on that summary point, I'll just say thank you so much, Bonnie, for talking with me today. It's a really important topic, and it's great to be able to dive into it with you. Absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. Rights Up Right Now is a podcast from the Oxford Human Rights Hub. Subscribe or follow us on iTunes, the Oxford Podcasting Service, or SoundCloud. SoundCloud.